0: Well, thank you. Um, and it is a great pleasure to be here. Uh, this is uh, i actually don't remember this room. Um, I hear it's been redone since, um, what was it, 1976 when I retired? No, when I uh, graduated? <laughs> yeah, uh, right, just a little slip. Um, OK, so what I want to talk about today is um, basic research for drug development. And, The reason for the topic is that the pharmaceutical industry is no longer significantly supporting basic research for antibiotic development. And the number of resistant bugs that are out there is increasing at an alarming rate. And the number of drugs available is decreasing at an alarming rate. So um, where's my... So to begin with, um, chemistry. Um, So a number of years ago, Sue and I uh, entered um, uh, the chemistry building for the first time, uh, not knowing each other as as freshmen on the first day of classes. Because there was a class, I think, in Professor Curran's office right now. Um, There was a small classroom, and Professor Bobco gave us a course. Well, many of you don't know Professor Bobko, but but he wasn't the most, he didn't have the easiest time communicating uh, in a social way with undergraduate students. And uh, he was given this challenge of doing this orientation seminar thing for incoming students. Well, it turns out that my future wife was in that class. We met on either the first day or the second time we met. And we were sort of an item for the rest of the four years, um, to the extent that the chemistry secretary used to refer to us as Sim and Two. Um, Anyway, so uh, there we were. And um, uh, we ended up getting married in uh, the chapel. Uh, It was a real chemistry event. you can see Professor DePhillips, Professor Smiley, Professor Moyer, um, and, and, uh, <laughs> um, and, and in fact, you can't see this very well. But this is right outside. This is this uh, uh, lovely uh, sundial that, that, that actually was one of my favorite pieces of, of sculpture on the, on the campus. Uh, and there's a whole line of chemistry faculty here. And another chemistry uh, uh, student graduate, um, uh, Sal Senna was the best man. So, and, and all of the, the people and the bridesmaids, and they were all chemists. Um, so it was, it was really a, a, quite an event. Um, so basic research. Um, a number of pharmaceutical companies have actually quit developing antibiotics. Um, 83 to 87, 16 new antibiotics. 2008 to 2012, only two. Um, the establishment of the World Trade Organization imposed in- intellectual property rights uh, on the rest of the world. And uh, this really limited the access uh, to drugs uh, for the third world, um, and a major problem. Um, drug companies spend more on advertising than they do on research. More on lifestyle drugs. We all hear about these every night on television. Um, and, and, and even though they're lifestyle drugs, we also hear about their, their side effects leading to possible death. Um, and uh, almost nothing on diseases uh, that, have, that affect developing countries alone. So a real serious problem. So things haven't changed very much. This is not anything new. Uh, you know, snake oil was, was advertised way back when. And, and so the pharmaceutical companies or chemical companies are out there to sell products. It's, they're profit-driven. They're not society-driven companies. They're not there to make sure that you have a better life. They're there to make a profit. And often the two, you know, better life and and a profit go together, but not always, all right? And so uh, this is a, a major problem. They would much rather put money into cancer development because cancer development yields vast sums of money for every drug used to treat cancer. The cost of an antibiotic to you and me is trivial. It's even less for me because my wife's a pediatrician, and so I I get samples from her office. Uh, (laughs) But that's beside the point. (laughs) So, um, and furthermore, the the research to develop new antibiotics is much greater than it was before because all of the low-hanging fruit in terms of antibiotics has already been developed. So it's really challenging to develop a new antibiotic. Um, and maybe the most important aspect of this is that all of these companies now are publicly held, or almost all of them are publicly held. And today, unlike my grandfather, who would buy stock, squirrel it away in a chest and not look at it for 30 years, today everyone's looking at the stock market pages, well, they used to, um, uh, in the newspaper, um, now you can just do it online I suppose, but, but They're interested in profits today and tomorrow, all right? Not next week or next year or next decade, all right? And as a result, they've got to turn a profit quickly. The development of an antibiotic may be a 20-year effort. And they can't afford to do that, all right? So who saves everything? The government, all right? Big government saves you um, because they support Funding agencies like the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. But the National Institutes of Health have lost 25% of their real value in in terms of what they can support scientists in the last 10 years, all right? So even there, um, we're really scrambling. Um, I was very fortunate, Um, a a number of friends of mine and myself had a grant proposals in last week that were reviewed on Thursday and Friday of last week, and so we were all very anxiously waiting, checking hourly to see if our scores were posted. And uh, so I, I finally, at noon on Monday, I got my score. It was a 25, and I thought, ugh, the scores go from 10 to, to 100. 25 is, is typically way out of the hunt. Um, but this panel must have been a really tough panel because I ended up with a 10.0 percentile, and that squeezes me just under the pay line at NIAID, the uh, Institute, National Institute for is it arthritis and infectious disease? I think so. Um, that, that supports me and, and their pay line is 11 percent, so it looks as if I'm going to get supported. Unfortunately, a number of my friends um, we're just over the pay line, and um, so that means that one out of ten approximately get supported now. This, these proposals are basically writing an, a dissertation, a PhD dissertation, each time you, you sit down and do it. Um, certainly the first proposals I, I put together uh, represented about a year's worth of writing, um, so it's a, it's a huge effort, and, uh, and so, uh, and these folks here can afford to do the long-term research that is necessary for antibiotic development and a great many other things. All right, so resistance, all right? The reason why we're in such trouble is because um, the antimicrobials develop resistance. And so penicillin was discovered, you know, ages ago. Um, And today, there are now 10 classes of antibiotics, and 200 antimicrobials are actually in use. Only 10 classes. What a class means is that basically, the structure is just modified to form different antimicrobials. So so the framework of the drug is about the same. Just 10 classes of antibiotics. So not many. So we need new classes of antibiotics. only one new drug for TB in the last 40 years. TB kills 1.4 million people a year. Um, there is now resistance to every one of these classes in, in various uh, microbes. And um, so uh, it, it in fact, in almost all pathogenic bacteria are resistant to some of the drugs. Many have multiple drug-resistant strains, some extreme drug-resistant strains. So a really significant problem. There are many ways a microbe can actually become resistant to a drug. Um, it can destroy the antibiotic. Beta-lactamase is an enzyme, all right, a protein that conducts chemistry in the cell. It was developed by the bug to kill penicillin, to eat it up. All right? then then the bug is resistant to penicillin. So very clever bugs. Um, The microbe can modify the target protein that penicillin would target. So the antibiotic targets a protein. And uh, if it mutates to a a slightly different form of the protein and can still do its function, then maybe the penicillin will no longer bind. So that's another way. and then uh, microbes can evolve certainly a different, completely different mechanism for conducting whatever essential function for the cell that penicillin was targeting uh, does. So that's funny. And finally, they can develop very clever mechanisms to recognize the antibiotic and export it, right? So these bugs are unbelievably clever at... You know, um, uh, uh, taking what we work very hard to develop and saying, (laughs) two people can play this game, and then you've got a resistant strain. So just as an example, and one that maybe many of you know, in Staphylococcus aureus, um, this was treated the first generation with um, um, staph infections. So this is was treated with penicillin in the early days. And doctors actually wrote in their notes that you could almost see the patient getting better as they just watched the patient after treating them with penicillin, because the bug had no resistance to it at all. And uh, they were probably using pretty extensive doses back in those days, right? Now, who knows? Um, But anyway. but by the 50s, there was resistance, and so they started to use methicillin. And then maybe maybe many of you have heard of MRSA. So MRSA is methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, all right? And this was a problem, especially in hospitals. Um, and today in hospitals now, there are these sanitation things at the door. When you go into a patient's room and there's gloves and everything else, and so um, They've dramatically reduced the spread of staph infections in hospitals um, over the past decade. Uh, but still, MRSA is a real problem. Vancomycin then became um, a drug of choice. Vancomycin is a nasty antibiotic. You have to take it an IV, and it causes significant challenges for the patient. All right, This is not something that you really want to depend on. Um, And then it's gone on to a number of other options. The bottom line is that 10,000 people a year die of MRSA infections, all right? We don't have the drugs to treat those patients. So, many uh, drug targets in the cell are membrane proteins. These are proteins that exist in the cellular membranes around the cells and they're really challenging to study. They live in a greasy environment. And they have sort of aqueous bits that stick out beyond the membrane into the, into the, the periplasm outside the cell or into the cytoplasm inside the cell. And so um, a, as you probably realize that while salt crystallizes very nicely in an aqueous solution, uh, grease does not crystallize, right? Grease. So grease is greasy, and it doesn't form crystals. Um, So trying to crystallize a membrane protein to get a three-dimensional structure of this pretty uh, protein so that you could figure out maybe how an antibiotic binds to this thing, that's really challenging to do. Um, So uh, we've developed an approach using NMR spectroscopy for looking at these proteins while they exist in cellular membranes, or models of the cellular membrane. So, as a result, um, well, so there's a great many membrane proteins on the surface, because they conduct all sorts of stuff. That's what lets things into the cell, lets things out of the cell, allows signaling across the cell. G-protein coupled receptors of membrane proteins, and they end up being... Uh, very important for all sorts of signaling devices between cells and so forth. So um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about influenza. Um, So back in, back in uh, almost a a century ago now, a third of the world's population was infected. This is what really brought World War I to a close. Uh, And a third of the world's population died. Uh, in the US, 28% were infected, 500 to 650,000 people died. And this is a map of, uh, or a, a chart showing as a function of month here the number of cases. And this was 60 cases per 1,000 per uh, in cities around the world. So these various Um Just, um, I'm sorry, 60 deaths per 1,000 uh, in various cities. Uh, Including, I I think think New York is among these. Um, Hospitals were made everywhere. Um, They were made in tents um, out in the desert, um, all sorts of, in order to treat the large number of of people. The really surprising thing here is that unlike people like me didn't die, all right? It was healthy young people like you, all right? that were killed. To this day, we don't understand why that happened. We Normally, infections knock off people like me or little kids, right? But no, not with the Spanish flu of 1918, 1919. So a real challenge uh, to try to figure out how that infection was so deadly. And this is why people are so concerned about, flu infections, and vaccines. So it's really important to get a vaccine, even though this year it wasn't all that successful. So what they have to do to develop a vaccine is nine months ahead of time, they have to guess what the strains are going to be. And then they, then they culture the vaccine in chicken eggs, vast quantities of chicken eggs and then they prepare the shots, all right? And this year, um, a couple of the strains were actually present and and protected people, but a number of the strains that were present in in the flu infection this year uh, weren't weren't protected by the, the vaccine. But this sort of thing could happen again, and we are not very well prepared to deal with it as uh, with drugs. So there are three significant drug targets in influenza. There's hemagglutinin, neuraminidase, and the lowly M2 protein. The M2 protein is very is lowly because it's a little small protein. Um, and its job is actually to allow acid to penetrate into the interior of the virus particle. So um, I'll, I'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, in, in uh, 1969, amantadine and romantadine were two drugs that were available as anti-flu drugs to treat influenza. In 2005, 2.6 billion doses were used on bird farms. Um, and surprise, surprise, the year later or two years later, these drugs were no longer effective for any of the strains. So, so something like 95% of the strains that are prominent in annual seasonal flu um, uh, seasons now are resistant to um, these drugs. So as a result, Tamiflu was basically the only drug available uh, this past year as an anti-flu drug to help patients. And people who are immune compromised, really, the flu infection is a serious problem. All right, so what happens with influenza? So here's, here's the virus. It comes along, gets endocytosed into the cell. So it gets, there's an invagination here, and it gets into the endosome. The endosome is acidic. This is usually a good step towards starting to break things down um, and destroy whatever they brought in so that they can take advantage of, of all of the bits and pieces of like amino acids and so forth. But instead, the acid here activates the M2 channel, acidifies the interior. And there's a set of proteins here that keep the structure intact. It dissociates those proteins from the cell wall. It then fuses with the endosomal wall, releasing the nucleic acid. And it takes over the cell. If you block the acid channel, you can stop the infection, all right? So it's a drug target. All right, membrane proteins are difficult to study, though. And and M2 and hemagglutinin and neuraminidase are all membrane proteins in the the capsid of the influenza virus. So we've got, you know, we go from a very greasy environment to a very hydrophilic environment, aqueous solution. There's a big water concentration. (laughs) All of these gradients. And heterogeneity makes it very difficult to prepare good samples of the protein. And it generates this this real challenge in terms of studying them, which is why so few membrane protein structures have been characterized. So once again, the goal behind this is to characterize the structure and how the protein actually conducts its function. If we knew how it functioned, maybe we could develop a drug that would bind specifically to disable the function of the protein, right? And that would be very specific then for this protein, as opposed to all of the other proteins in your body that might be exposed to the drug and might cause a wide variety of side effects, possibly leading to death. So not wanting to do that. Um, One of the challenges in all of this is that in your biochemistry textbooks, I am sure the ones that are used here, it's also true for the ones that I use when I teach biochemistry, poor Christian Anfinsen here who got his Nobel Prize um, and wrote a nice paper in science following that uh, Nobel lecture is misquoted. He is quoted as saying that the amino acid sequence of proteins dictates the protein structure. He did not say that. He said that in a given environment, the amino acid sequence dictates the structure. Because he also said that it is the totality of interatomic interactions. It's not only the interactions between the amino acids that dictate structure, but it's the interactions with the environment. Okay, so in a membrane protein, we've got this whole wide variety of interactions that needs to be modeled if you're going to study the protein. Because it's very difficult to study the protein in a native cell. Number one, M2 is not present in native cell, so you have to study it maybe as a virus particle. Getting all of those virus particles as contagion is really not what I want to expose my lab to. And and since my students aren't so very careful, I'm sure they would get the flu, which would undoubtedly transmit to me. So eh, we're not going to go there. So so we express the protein in E. coli. Here's the amino acid sequence. And uh, we express this protein. Uh, It's this portion of the protein that actually conducts the protons and virus proteins typically do lots of different functions. So we're just going to focus on, on this region here, um, but we're now beginning to look at the full length protein. Early on, we looked at just this fragment here uh, and studied that, but now our techniques have gotten much better. All right, And so we collect NMR data. And I this is not going to be an NMR talk. so um, But just to let you know that we actually do collect some data, um, so these are, are unique NMR spectra, in that what we do is we take lipid bilayers, we put the protein into the lipid bilayer, we align it on a glass slide, like a cover slip, and then we stack the cover slips up because NMR is the world's lowest sensitivity spectroscopic technique. There is nothing worse than NMR in terms of sensitivity. So you have to have a nice big sample. So it actually requires maybe a couple of milligrams of the protein. Um, And we have to isotopically label it so that we can see specific sites. So we have amino acid-specific label. So we grow this thing up on a culture that has all of the natural amino acids, except for one, like maybe isoleucine. And then we N15-label isoleucine and put N15-labeled isoleucine into this this, uh, E. coli culture. And then we isolate the protein from the E. coli and put it into these lipid bilayers and orient them. And we can get orientations of the protein in the bilayer normal good to plus or minus one degree, right? This is almost as good as the alignment in a crystal structure, in a crystalline environment for a protein crystal structure. So the blue ones are from an isoleucine label. The black here is from a valine label, then leucine, and phenylalanine, and so forth, and so on and on and on and on. We can also, so what that actually does for us is it determines each of those signals determines exactly how the polypeptide backbone, where there's this nitrogen site labeled, is oriented with respect to the bilayer normal. So if we've got a helix, we can actually see this pattern of of resonances. Um, We can also measure distances between the helices um, by doing something called magic angle spinning solid state NMR. That's where you put a sample into this little tiny rotor, and you then fire an air jet at it, and it spins at anywhere from 10,000 hertz per second, cycles per second, to 100,000 per second. A pretty small spinner for 100,000 per second, because if you get to be about one-third the speed of sound, it starts to vibrate. So the tangential velocity of the... So, so 100,000 cycles per second, we're dealing with something that's probably about 0. 0.9 millimeters in diameter. All right, The little cap that goes on it to seal your sample inside is sort of like a fly speck. If you drop it, kiss it goodbye, and it's $300 to replace it. So um, students have to become fairly careful with their technique. All right, so we developed the structure uh, of... Uh, a good uh, about half of the protein structure. There's a little bit that sticks out here into the aqueous environment. There's more that sticks down here into the um, uh, interior of the virus particle. We have characterized the structure in this lipid bilayer environment. So all of the green here is carbon. So this is the fatty acyl chains of the lipid environment. That's very hydrophobic, very greasy. And then this is the water that's outside and on the inside of the membrane. And from this structure, and we can also show it in cartoon fashion. We like cartoons because they simplify the picture and, and makes a little bit more sense out of it. Um, So this shows that we've got these helical structures. um, And there's three very interesting residues. There's valine-27 that forms a bit of a gate up here at the top. And trip-41 at the bottom. And then there are these unique histidine residues that actually are associated with transporting the proton. So what we want to know is the details of how this thing works. And um, all of the drugs to this point have been fairly crude. Amantadine and romantadine, all that they did was to plug the hole. All right? Nothing sophisticated here, right? This is a carbon ball with an amino group on the end of it. uh, Amantadine, it is strictly a carbon, proton, ball, one amino group. And it plugs the hole, all right? Um, What actually ends up happening is that it somehow manages to squeeze by the valines, and then um, the valines come in over the top of it and interact with the hydrocarbon ball and seal it off, all right? So no protons can get through, no hydronium ions, all right? So that's the way it's been done. You can see the pore here in the structure. So this blue thing identifies the aqueous region. You can see that it's squeezed here at the valines, squeezed very much so here with the tryptophan, and this is where the histidines are. All right, so we want to do something better. So lots more data, all right? But the bottom line is that we know that these histidines from four protein monomers, this is a tetrameric structure. So there's four proteins. So there's four histidine-37 residues uh, here. And they form these cross bridges between the proteins. Right? So these histidine-histidine cross bridges. And we know lots about the structures of these things. And in fact, there's multiple variations on this uh, theme uh, that we see from the NMR spectra as we go down in pH to, where the, the P, to the pH where this thing is active. So the, the channel is not active at high pH. It's only activated when it gets into the endosome at, at relatively low pH, maybe 5.5 or so, becomes active. And in, sure enough, here at pH 6.2, we see uh, vast quantities of, of signals. Uh, it looks like a mess, but, but in fact, uh, we've got methods for, for uh, resolving some of those signals not all of them. Um, so we're in the process of, I got a student that's going to be defending her PhD on, this, uh, on these spectra uh, in, a, in another month and a half. Uh, and she's done a fabulous job of recording data that's, that no one else in the world has been able to uh, obtain. All right. So here's the function. So basically, just very briefly, Here are the histidines. What happens is the proton comes in, it transfers onto the histidine and then transfers off of the histidine to water molecules on the other side. There is no water that goes through here. So it's sealed off. So now we know that the histidines completely control this thing. We know their conformation. And the question is, can we develop a drug that binds specifically to histidines? And one of the things that... Professor Moyer, I'm sure, is thinking right now is that there's a lot of metal ions that would love to bind to a set of four histidines. The problem is that metal ions can be fairly toxic. So something like copper. Copper would love to bind to this thing. All right? But copper's toxic. All right? So the question is, can we target the copper delivery to this protein? And that is exactly where our research stands right at this moment. all right? And that's That proposal will hopefully go to NIH um, uh, later on this summer Um, through collaborations, not from my lab, but we collaborate with lots of other people who have the specific skills in that um, organic, metal-organic synthesis technology. All right. So that's... That's the bottom line. So our goal now is to develop that a compound that targets the function, not just plugs a hole. All right. Um, I have just a few more minutes. And I want to talk to you about one more project. So we're working on e- tuberculosis. So tuberculosis kills, as I mentioned earlier, 1.4 million people a year. Um, there are, this is a, there's a huge effort to develop drugs for tuberculosis because of this problem. And it's also got extreme drug-resistant strains. There are hospitals being built today in the world that are designed to house people with extreme drug-resistant TB who are intended to make those patients comfortable for the rest of their lives until they die of TB, all right? This is the case, this was the case in the US many years ago, in fact, Texas was one of the the states that was hit very hard by tuberculosis and it is um, a collaborator at a very good institute in, uh, at the health center in Texas that is focused on working on TB that I collaborate with. And, and she helps with a lot of the biological aspects of tuberculosis, since, since none of my students, for some reason, are very excited about growing mycobacterium tuberculosis in the lab, or, or even the non-toxic versions of, of uh, tuberculosis. So, um, uh, so we collaborate. When, so, so why is this such a challenge? Well, it's a challenge for many reasons, but one of them is this incredible outer shell of of the virus. It has this outer membrane, and a number of bacteria have an outer membrane, um, but it's a very thick capsule. It's got this arabinoglycan, so glycans are sugars, and arabinose is, 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 is another... Uh, component here that form these polymers, very dense polymers, not sort of scattered the way it's shown here. Then there's another peptidoglycan layer, and then there's an inner membrane, and so this very thick membrane surrounds the bug. Getting anything into the bug is very difficult. Now one of the other problems is that the bug decides to go into a latent state as soon as it's challenged with the drug. The latent state is a hibernating state, all right? So it just puts up some sort of protection screen, and nothing penetrates. It doesn't divide, all right? So it just sits there until the drugs go away, all right? Well, if you keep the drug treatment going for six months and you don't have a resistant strain, maybe you can, maybe you can cure it, all right? If you have a resistant strain, maybe that's two years. The drugs that are now being used are highly toxic. People decide they'd much rather have TB than go through the treatment. They're that toxic. They lose weight, vast amounts of weight, right? I mean, to the people who are undergoing these treatments look like skeletons, all right? So it's a really serious problem these resistant strains are developing everywhere. So one of the things that the World Health Organization has done is to develop a program called DOTS. And that's daily, what is it, daily observed treatment. That means a nurse comes to your home or some some person comes to your home, gives you the medicine, you take the medicine while she's watching, and make sure that you swallow it. All right and then she leaves all right and in that way insists and knows that the treatment has been taken and that the treatment hasn't been cut in half by someone along the way who's trying to give the treatment to multiple people and and and, and make a scam out of it all right but and and you know this for the resistant strains the second line of drugs really re- require that people be hospitalized being hospitalized for 2 years away from your family is, you know, just a terrible uh, sort of thing. So, all right, so this big shell, all right, so one of the challenges in a bacteria is how do you divide and maintain the integrity of your coat? All right, well, mycobacterium has this really elaborate coat, so it has an elaborate system for, for uh, reproduction. So the divisome is the set of mem- uh, membrane proteins that's involved in cell division, all right? So it's responsible for making new cell wall and breaking down the old cell wall in order to make the, the division, the barrier, between two budding cells, all right? And un- uh, the, one of the things that's really unusual is that the elong- you know most cells elongate from the center where you're going to divide and pinch off two budding cells. TB doesn't work that way. It elongates from the ends and then divides in the center. So there's got to be communication between the elongation and the dividing foot. That happens here with some communication between these two sets. So each of these um, balls here um, represents a protein. CRGA is a protein that we've just solved the structure for for the first time. Um, and CWSA, we're almost there to having a structure and it is over here somewhere too. We think that that's the communication link between these two. If we could stop the communication link between these two, we could kill the bug, right? If we could prevent the division from taking place, we could kill the bug. Better yet, or almost as good, is if we could induce the bug to divide, then it would be sensitive to all the other drugs. And maybe we could get an antibiotic regime down to 10 days, all right? Which would make vast numbers of people who have tuberculosis exceptionally happy, all right? So so it's almost a win-win. So so as a scientist, what you want to do is you want to get into win-win situations, right? So if we can induce division, that would be great. If we could prevent division, that would also be great. These are are the things that we'd like to go after. Whoops. If I have a chance to. If I don't kill myself here. All right. So. So. um, And these proteins interact with lots of other proteins. If we could prevent the interaction between proteins, we might also have have an opportunity to to, uh, disrupt uh, division. So this protein, CRGA, interacts with... Penicillin-binding protein B and penicillin-binding protein A. Penicillin is no longer used for tuberculosis because it's highly resistant to it. Um, But these proteins that penicillin used to bind to have been named uh, long ago. Um, And and this protein also binds to a water-soluble protein called FTSZ that forms, for those of you taking biology, the the Z ring um, that forms when cells divide is formed by this protein called FTSZ. These things are shown in jagged here because this is a new class of proteins that that people we haven't known until just recently. These proteins are intrinsically disordered. They don't have a structure until they bind to their binding partner. So, and they for this this real excitement. I just came from the Biophysics Society meeting um, in Baltimore where there were 8,000 people and the hottest topics were on intrinsically disordered proteins. So people are, are very excited about trying to figure out what the, the structure is in these things that, that sort of the nascent structure before it binds to um, a target. Um, and if we could figure that out, maybe we could disrupt that, uh, that binding. So we collect more data for CRGA um, and um, um, whoops, Uh, And um, so in science, science is, you know, scientists, you know, in their own lab doing science. Well, art is important. Art's important because if you can do some decent art, you can maybe get the cover of the journal. And everyone likes to get the cover of the journal. So um, what we discovered a long time ago was that these spectra here, um, actually represent helical wheels. And for those of you who've taken biochemistry know that a helix has 3.6 amino acids per turn, and it forms this wheel-like pattern. So you get these, the C alpha positions form this, this pattern. Well, it turns out that the data forms this pa- pattern. This is residue uh, 76, 77 would be here. This is residue 78, 79 would be here. This is 80. All right. So, that gave us the opportunity to take, um, the, and the experiment that we use for doing this is called PISIMA. So, um, NMR spectroscopists always come up with, with acronyms to name their favorite pulse sequences for doing experiments, and you know, that's, that's, that's another culture. Um, so, we decided to take the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Uh, distort it to make it into an alpha helix, and then show the sun, which is the magnetic field, uh, displaying this pattern of resonances in the plane of Pisa. (laughs) That's how you get the cover of a journal. Uh, Also happening to know the person who is editor of the Journal of Magnetic Resonance, it did help. Okay so not only did we get this orientational restraints but we got distances again the way I talked about before and we solved the structure. All right so here's the structure of CRGA um, and we think it binds FDSQ. FDSQ we've modeled in here binding to CRGA um, and we've there are certain ways in which you can recognize a binding site so we think we've got a model for how this works um, not absolutely sure, but that's the direction we're going in. I'm trying to understand function of these proteins and how they work. And so with that, I'd like to thank a bunch of people. Uh, Nabanita has done all the work on CRGA. Yi Min is, is graduating with this work on the histidines in, in uh, the M2 protein. is also looking at drugs bound to M2. Mukesh did the original structure of M2, and my computationalist colleague Wanzhon Zhou um, has uh, been just a tremendous help. We have big magnets in the magnet lab that help us to do all of this work. And by the way, it's a facility free to users around the world, um, including folks here at Trinity. Um, and you know, it all started in a great library, and I was so thrilled to see the library still had a few books left in it and the same chairs, I might add. (laughs) (laughs) They hadn't changed. What had changed was there used to be an HP 35 here and an HP 45 calculator there. And none of us could afford calculators uh, when we arrived. And so uh, we would always come in here. and. Well, ABC Pizza, there used to be a delivery to the chemistry department. I don't know that Professor DePhillips actually knew about this. But there was a delivery to the uh, chemistry library almost every night. Um, and um, while well, a whole group of us were working there, it was just a fabulous experience. And I hope you all are having great experiences here at Trinity as well. Thank you very much.